0: Well, let's jump uh, right in with our study this week, uh, part four of our series, The Daniel Project. We are learning together from the life of this remarkable man named Daniel, how we can live faithfully and wisely in a secular culture. And if, uh, if you're ready, uh, get your Bible open to Daniel 4, get your message notes out, and we will get started. Daniel 4 is a chapter that confronts the pride in our lives. And it's an unusual story, as you're going to see. It teaches us that ultimately, pride is crazy. It's vanity, insanity. And the reason that pride is insane is that pride makes you God's adversary. I want to show you this by pointing your attention to the very last sentence of chapter 4. It's in verse 37. And the last sentence of chapter 4 reads like this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Why don't you say that with me out loud, okay, together? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, this is kind of the executive summary of this entire chapter. It is the reason that this story is in the Bible. And we need to all be very, very clear on what is being said here. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, this kind of statement occurs over and over throughout the Bible. I'm going to put a few examples up on this screen. Psalm 31, 23 says, The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 101, verse 5 says, Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure. And Proverbs 16, 5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to to the humble. Now, just look at those words up on the screen while I pose this question, and the question is real simple. Why? Why does God make such a big deal about pride? Our world doesn't. I mean, I, I've worked as a pastor now for over 30 years, and I've had people come to me for all kinds of reasons, for problems of discouragement and depression and anxiety and doubt, for addictions and lying and anger mismanagement. I have never yet had someone set an appointment and come in and tell me that they need to talk to me about their pride problems. I mean, just go to any self-help section in the bookstore and see how many books you find about developing humility. See, as a general rule, our world celebrates pride as one of life's central virtues. I mean, we're supposed to be proud of ourselves, to be confident and strong. And there is a place, for a healthy kind of pride. But we cannot gloss over the Bible's warnings against pride. We must take them seriously because pride, pride more than anything else, friends, please hear this, will keep us from knowing God. And Daniel chapter 4 shows us how a person can know God. It shows us how a person can come into a right relationship with God a few years ago a man named Ernest Kurtz wrote what has become the definitive history of alcoholics anonymous and the 12 step movement and he gave it an intriguing title he called it not god kurtz said the fundamental problem that addicts have is way down deep they refuse to acknowledge their own weakness their own brokenness their own limitations he said that the problem with the alcoholic is not that he thinks i'm a worm not even that he thinks I am very special, but that he nurses the thought, I am a very special worm. I may have this little problem, he thinks, but I alone among the human race am exempt from the law of consequences. And he, he said something that we uh, teach and we seek to practice in our Celebrate Recovery ministry. He said that recovery, healing, sanity begins with a single realization. I am not God. And I need help from a power greater than myself. I need to be saved from me. This I am God illusion is not unique to alcoholics. In fact, every one of us ought to right now say amen. Amen. Those of you who didn't know that, you need to work on it. It's been a problem for the human race from the very beginning, right? Just go to the very beginning of the book of of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and ask yourself the question as you read those opening chapters, what lies behind the very first sin? Well, the, the tempter comes to Eve and says, when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And so this realization, I'm not God, is the very beginning of moral and spiritual sanity. I I want you to make sure that you take that away. I mean, if you don't take anything else away this morning, you need to remember this. And so just to help with that, if you don't mind, I want to ask you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to say to them, my name is, whatever your name is, and I'm not God. Can you do that right now? Actually say that to that person. Just to let them know. Now actually, this is not something that needs explanation. You don't need to elaborate. They already know. Just a simple statement will suffice. They get it. Um, But, you know, in reality, when it's really serious, this is a very hard confession for most of us to make, right? In fact, the writer Anne Lamott once said, the greatest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. Friends, the most important discovery in life is I am not God. The most important problem in life is that I am estranged. I am separated and alienated from God. And the most important question, therefore, is how can I get right with this God? And the answer to that question, if you've never heard it before, you're going to hear it today in this chapter of Daniel. It's found right here, and it centers around this issue of pride, because you see, pride is lethal to our relationship with God. I want us to see why that's so today. I want us as a community, as a people, a family together, to declare war on pride in our lives. And as we go through Daniel 4, we're going to have help for this. We're going to see five insights on destroying pride in my life. Here's the first one. You can write it in your message notes. Number one, success opens the door to pride. We need to be aware of this. Now, the first three chapters of Daniel 4 are written after the events of the chapter. And together with verse 37, uh, these verses bookend the chapter. They, They reflect how Nebuchadnezzar felt after he'd gone through the experience we're gonna read about today. So here's how it begins. Beginning in verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar, To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then, in verse 4, he begins his story. And we see pride emerging. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And why not? I mean, from the roof of his palace, Nebuchadnezzar looked out over Babylon, the greatest city in the entire world, and he built it. His accomplishments were almost without parallel in all of human history. Babylon was the site of so much building during his reign. It actually takes 126 pages just to record the inscriptions that were carved into the buildings he built. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and maybe the most impressive was called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. As the story goes, Nebuchadnezzar built them for one of his homesick wives who was missing her mountain homeland, and so he just built this amazing uh, suspended gardens with trees and this sophisticated irrigation system just for her from his palace. He could see a double wall running all the way around his city. We're told that the outer wall went for 56 miles, and it was so wide you could turn around a four-horse chariot on top of that wall. He built that. There was simply no city like this anywhere. The historian Herodotus wrote, In addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. And this city was Nebuchadnezzar's city. He built it. It wouldn't be there without him. I was in my palace, contented, prosperous. You see, when you think about it, hasn't Nebuchadnezzar achieved what we define as the good life? He's prosperous, and he's contented, and he's happy. Did Nebuchadnezzar, you think, think that he had a problem? No. I was content and prosperous in my palace, but, but God thought he had a problem. You see, one of pride's great dangers is, the, is that the people who are most proud tend to be the most blind to their pride. And so God launches Nebuchadnezzar on a journey that will be very long and very painful. And though he doesn't know it yet, it is the battle for his soul. He has never faced a battle like this one before. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? And Nebuchadnezzar, he might have gained the entire world, but he is about to lose his soul. Look at verses 5 through 18. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passed by for him. This decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict and note this, so that, so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over, over them the lowliest of men. And we're going to get back to that, so remember this. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, that's the story. That's the dream. Before we go on to the second insight, I have a question to ask you. Is your life going well? If it is, wonderful. But beware, success Opens the door to pride. Here's the second insight. We need outside help to deal with pride's blindness. Very few of us are able to see and deal with our own pride. Most often, we're just not aware of it. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time in his thoughts terrified. And I'll stop here for a moment. Daniel gets very quiet. I kind of wonder if his face goes white, all the blood drains out, because he knows this is very bad news for the king. And it may surprise you to find out that Daniel is very concerned for Nebuchadnezzar, this king who killed his people, who destroyed his country, who hurled him into lifelong exile as a teenager. Now, we don't know how and when it all happened that he grew closer and closer to Nebuchadnezzar, but it is clear in this book that Daniel cared for Nebuchadnezzar's soul. Daniel loved him. He's probably been in exile now for 30 or more years, and he's grown to spend a lot of time with Nebuchadnezzar. He knows, he knows him, and he really cares for him, and, and Nebuchadnezzar knows him, and Nebuchadnezzar can read his face, and he can tell that something's wrong. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is a confident guy, and so he asks for the truth. Look what he says. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. In other words, Daniel, I want you to tell me the truth. Don't sugarcoat it. Nebuchadnezzar, we know, is not yet ready to act on truth. That's going to take a lot more time. That's going to take a lot of suffering. But when this day comes, Nebuchadnezzar will know what he needs to do because of what Daniel tells him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had a trusted spiritual friend. And at a key moment when he didn't have to, he, he says to this friend, tell me the truth no matter what. And in a, in a sense, that is what eventually saves him. So I want to challenge you this morning. Do you have a Daniel in your life? Do you have someone who can speak truth to you, who can tell you about the pride in your life? We all need friends like that. So here's the thing. With so many other struggles that we have, anger and sexual sins and addictions and and so on, you, you at least know you have a problem. And in fact, most people far from God, they know they have problems, but pride always comes with a blind spot. We just don't see the pride in our lives. And often the people who are most susceptible to pride's blind spot are the people who think that they are the most spiritual. And so I just want to challenge you today. You need a Daniel in your life. If you don't have someone like that yet, then you need to pray and you need to ask God to lead you to to one. And if you do, I want to encourage you sometime this week as a response to God's truth in your life today, go to that person, simply ask him or her, will you tell me the truth? Do you see any of these issues in my life? Would you be open to hearing that? You know, ask them. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get a whole lot right here, but he does this right. He asks for the truth. Let's keep going. Still in verse 19, Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, If only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now, this is a strange dream. At the center is the great tree, it's the tree of glory, and it expresses the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Everyone looks up to him, the whole earth can see the tree. He receives constant praise and admiration. Everyone depends on him. The tree provides food and shelter for everyone, even the animals. He just lives with these constant reminders of how important he is. Everyone does what he wants them to do. This is a man who understands power, how to acquire it, how to protect it, how to use it to further his agenda. It's just this incredible picture of proud, stubborn, self-sufficiency. King Nebuchadnezzar has incredible achievements but he never acknowledges God. He never recognizes that every breath he takes, every thought he thinks is a gift. He doesn't see that one day he will be accountable to that God. He doesn't see how other people have helped him become who he is. He thinks he did it all. I have kind of a favorite story about the folly of human pride. There was the CEO of a huge corporation who was driving with his wife and They pull into a service station to get some gas and uh, he goes into the the store and when he comes back out, he notices that his wife is engaged in a very animated conversation with the service station attendant. They get in the car and they drive away and start talking and it turns out that she knew that attendant. It turns out that they actually used to date when they were back in high school. The CEO, kind of cocky, And after a time of silence, he says to his wife, I'll bet I know what you're thinking. I'll bet you're thinking that you're pretty lucky you married me, the CEO of a great corporation and and not a service station attendant. And she says, well, no, actually, I was thinking if I'd married him and not you, he'd be the CEO of a great corporation and you'd be a service (laughs) station attendant. And all the women said, That I maybe mean, maybe the biggest amen I've gotten in the last 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> this message may be more relevant than some of us think. It could be so. Well, we all have this illusion, don't we? I made myself who I am. And I just want you to ask yourself, is that what you think? Do you ever forget to acknowledge your dependence on God? Do you ever forget that all your abilities are gifts from God? Do you ever forget about all the people in your life who have made your life possible? I mean, it's very ironic. Nebuchadnezzar is about to have his entire life interrupted by a prolonged bout of insanity. But the truth is, spiritually, he is already quite insane. He is already out of touch with spiritual reality. Now that takes us to the third insight about destroying pride. Write this down. God always interrupts our pride. See, God has to act here because information alone will not cause Nebuchadnezzar to renounce his sin. His pride is too deeply woven into the way he thinks and he lives. All he can see is his agenda, his kingdom. And so God has to step in. God needs to interrupt him. Now, in verse 27, Daniel does a remarkable thing. It's one of the most amazing verses in the entire book. Daniel's now given the dream and its interpretation, and he could stop there. But he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now think about it. Daniel Daniel could have in this moment given him some vague encouragement. Oh, king, you know, maybe, maybe you could sort of do a little bit of work on your spiritual life, make it a little bit stronger. But what does he say? What does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar, the furnace man? Renounce your sins. And your wickedness. Did you know, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are a wicked man? Now, again, you need to hear how those words are being spoken. You need to remember that, that Daniel loves Nebuchadnezzar. He is not speaking those words in contempt. He says, Do what is right. Be kind to the oppressed, or it could be translated, do justice to the poor. He's doing what we today sometimes call speaking truth to power. And just think about it. How many times do you think in that throne room that Nebuchadnezzar's advisors have said these words to him? "O king, renounce your sins and your wickedness. See, Daniel is doing some very serious meddling And sometimes people get confused about this. Daniel does not say, you know, king, just keep living the way you've been living. Just change your religion. Just theoretically acknowledge that God is in control. Just adopt the name of my God instead of your God's. No, Daniel Daniel is now messing with how much money goes into the hanging gardens, how many more walls get built, how many more palaces get built with Nebuchadnezzar's name carved into them, how many more people get conquered and enslaved and beaten and killed in the process. This is not just about Nebuchadnezzar changing the name of a god that he worships, although it includes that. Nebuchadnezzar must change the way that he treats people, O oh, King, renounce your sins. You see, when someone actually gets serious about getting right with God, it's painful to recognize the truth, and the truth is, I am sinful, and it's hard for me to see that because I don't, I don't even see my sin. I just take it around with me. I saw this on the internet some time ago. Edith, a mother of eight, was coming home from the neighbors one Saturday afternoon, and things seemed too quiet as she walked across her front yard. Curious, she peered through the screen door and saw five of her youngest children huddled together in the living room, concentrating on something. As she crept closer, trying to see, she could not believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of the circle were five baby skunks. Edith screamed, quit, children, run. Each kid picked up a skunk and ran. (laughs) Isn't that the human condition? We just grab the skunk and run, don't we? We just take it with us. (laughs) We take our sin with us. And, And you see, the very habits, the very pride that destroys us, my greed... My line, my judgmental heart, my sexual immorality, my apathy, my selfishness, my gluttony, my hypocrisy. those things get so deep into us that we don't even know they're there. We just carry them with us. We're so used to them. And then every once in a while something happens, we get caught. We get exposed. And it's so interesting, when we do this, we'll often see it, especially with public figures. I mean, almost always the response when a public figure gets caught is to say, well, that's not me. And that's what we often say, that's not me. Well, of course it is. (laughs) It's all in me. It's just that usually we're, we're pretty good at hiding it. We're pretty good at disguising it. And now in this story, Daniel is just bringing all of this to the light with Nebuchadnezzar. And God is not subtle about this. It's clear. Renounce your sins. And then he goes on to say to Nebuchadnezzar, it may be, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. It may be. It depends. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, is he willing to humble himself? Is he willing to renounce his sin, to to bend the knee? It may be. And if you're following this story closely, what you're doing right now is you're holding your breath right at this moment because... You're wondering, what's going to happen? What does Nebuchadnezzar say next? Daniel speaks these amazing words right to his face. Does Nebuchadnezzar yell at him? Does he just dismiss him? Does he weep? Does he confess? We don't know. Daniel says these words, and then maybe you already noticed in the very next verse, this is what we're told. I want you to notice the time gap as we move to insight number four, which tells us God ultimately judges our pride. God is very patient with our pride, but he will always judge it. Here's what we read in the very next verse. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So God sent the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He gave Daniel the interpretation. Daniel told the king and confronted him with his sinful pride. And then God waited 12 months, an entire year. Do you see how God is so very patient? Every day for a year, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. Every day for a year, he chooses to push this dream and its meaning out of his mind. Every day he says, I will not bend my knee to this God. I will not renounce my sins. I will not show kindness to the poor, not today. I'm gonna keep building my gardens. I'm gonna keep building my palaces and my walls. I will spend my money the way that I want to. Maybe he thinks God's bluffing. Maybe he thinks he's clever enough to outsmart God. Maybe he tells himself what some of you tell yourselves that one day he will pay attention, one day he will give guys his obedience. Not today. Maybe he tries not to think about the dream at all. I'll bet he avoids Daniel that entire year. And it goes on like that until one year later, he has become a complete slave to all the arrogance and self-centeredness that God has so strongly warned him about. This is a story about plan A and plan B. You see, God's plan A with Nebuchadnezzar is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together. God wants to use reason with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's generally how God wants to work with us. You think about it. Doesn't a, a good parent always prefer to use reason with a child? I mean, it's gentler, And it's actually much more effective when someone willingly chooses to do what is right. But let me just ask you today, parents, doesn't appeal to reason always work? Is it always effective to say to a three-year-old, I earnestly appeal to your better nature. (laughs) Stop pulling your sister's hair. This could cause her physical and psychological pain and could require very expensive therapy one day. You know, we have a, pi- a phrase for people who believe uh, that you can u- raise a child uh, by only appealing to reason, never doing anything else. I like to call them PWCs, people without children. Because <laughs> three year olds do not always respond to reason, and that's why parents need things like timeout chairs and grounding privileges and tranquilizers. The <laughs> tranquilizers are for the parents. You know, a good parent always prefers to use reason with a child, but, but sometimes, sometimes we won't listen to reason. And therefore, God moves to plan B, and plan B will be much more painful for Nebuchadnezzar. If, if people, you see, refuse to listen to God without pain, God will use pain. It is never his first choice, but he will use it. And I just have to ask you right now, I just have to ask you, has God, has God been trying to get through to you in a very gentle way? Maybe through an uneasy conscience that you've been ignoring. Maybe a friend has tried to talk to you like Daniel and you just blew it off. See, there are some of you in this room right now, and you have an area in your life where you are not submitting to the sovereign God, the most high. You are not letting him rule. Maybe it's a pattern of deceit. Maybe it's sexual misbehavior. Maybe it involves a lack of concern for the poor. Maybe it has something to do with tithing. And you come to church, and you hear a message about obeying God, and you know that you should come clean, get help, turn around renounce your sin, you know that you're defying God because you've been doing this day after day, week after week, month after month, and some of you year after year, and you find sometimes, if you can just distract yourself once more, the feeling goes away. So I want to tell you right now, when God wants to reason with you, when God comes in gentleness with that still small voice, Don't ignore him. Maybe you think God's bluffing. He's not. Maybe you've been saying to yourself, you know, someday, someday, I'll get around to giving God my obedience. God is so patient. He is so merciful. He is so full of love for us. But he will ultimately judge our pride, even if it takes pain. God... God uses pain in our lives if he needs to. God says, I I don't want to treat you like that. And he says, you don't want to go there. But people do. They still do today. And so I just want to urge you, listen to God respond. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. And so God goes to plan B. And plan B involves much more drastic measures. This one's going to leave a mark. He sends Nebuchadnezzar on an involuntary sabbatical. He's going to lose his throne, lose his wealth, lose his kingdom, lose his community, lose his sanity. God's going to use pressure because he has to to reshape Nebuchadnezzar's character. Look at verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar the king has to face reality. You know, we have a wonderful phrase in Celebrate Recovery to talk about that place of repentance. We call it hitting bottom. Nebuchadnezzar has to hit bottom. And he looks out at Babylon, and he says those prideful words, is this not the great city I built for my glory by my mighty power? And he becomes insane. Scholars speculate, we don't know for sure, that he was afflicted with a form of a mental illness that's known as boanthropy. It's an illness in which the human being person thinks that they're an ox. They're an animal. And he loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his power. He loses his influence. And for seven years, he lives like an animal. See, how long will this take? Well, as long as it takes for him to listen to God. See, God judges his pride until Nebuchadnezzar sees that God and his plans are more important than Nebuchadnezzar's plans until he sees that people matter to God, other people than him, and that they should matter to Nebuchadnezzar, until it comes to dawn on him that all he thought he had accomplished because of his power and his glory, it was all just a gift. He didn't deserve it. He had never earned it. He, He could lose it all in a heartbeat. He would one day stand accountable for everything to God. And it took him seven years to learn that because he... Like some of us, insisted on learning the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the one qualification that God was looking for in his heart, well, it was actually the last thing that he expected, and it was humility. That actually takes us to the fifth insight. Write this down Humble dependence on God frees us from pride. You want to be free from pride? You want to be free from God's judgment? It's about humility. It's about humility. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. See, when he uses this phrase, you need to understand he's not just saying uh, where he directed his gaze. He's saying, finally, I stopped looking at my agenda, my glory, myself. Finally, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked at the one I had been avoiding my entire life. Finally, I raised my eyes toward heaven. I looked to God because I had nowhere else to look. I realized that he was my only hope. And of course, that was all that God was waiting for. It was so ironic when when Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world, ruler of the planet, empire builder, God wasn't impressed with him at all. But now, homeless, broken, insane, insane. He just raises his eyes toward heaven independence and he finds a father who loves him, a father who's been waiting all this time, seven years, for his child to come home. You know, maybe you're in a hard place today. Maybe you are here and you know you have messed up badly and maybe you've been doing it for a long time and maybe you are now paying a price. Maybe you've damaged someone else so badly and you know it and the consequences are are coming home to roost. Maybe the truth about you is you have been building your own kingdom, your own little Babylon, and now it's falling apart. Nebuchadnezzar finally gets to that place. I lifted my eyes toward heaven. And he discovers what everyone who does that will discover, that God's heart is always a heart of grace, always a heart ready to forgive, always a heart full of love. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story. But, but now the question is, what's yours? See, nobody can make things right between them and God by being on the performance plan We learn that completely and fully when we get to the New Testament and we see the life of Jesus Christ. We see the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We learn that fully in the gospel. And the Bible says that God is a holy God. And therefore, uh, for people to live with him forever, they must be holy too. They must be free from sin. And that's not any one of us. You cannot be that good. It's impossible And so this is not about you doing a few more good things in your life, becoming more respectable, giving a little bit more money, coming to church more often. See, God is a holy God, and God will never lower his standards of perfection. And so amazingly, incredibly, he decides to lower himself. God places his kingdom under the lowliest of people. Do you remember that phrase? God sends his son, Jesus Christ, the carpenter who humbled himself and became obedient to death, to even death on a cross. On that cross, the Bible tells us, the gospel tells us, Jesus was expressing both God's anger and wrath, God's refusal to accept sin, and God's willingness at the same time to suffer because of his love for you, for me. On the cross, Jesus was in some way bearing the sins of the world, Nebuchadnezzar's sins, your sins, my sins. He died on the cross, the death that you and I should die. And as a result, we can be forgiven. We can be free. Anyone can be in a right relationship with God. And it's not based on how we perform. Because have you ever noticed when something's based on performance, pride follows right behind It is not based on our performance. It is based on what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished. I'm here to tell you today, if you humble yourself before God, he will free you. If you will raise your eyes toward heaven because your father, your God loves you, he will restore you and he can use even a time of such a mess that may have occurred in your life. Nebuchadnezzar, he looks up his sanity is restored, and his immediate response is to praise God. Notice, then I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? I want you to notice, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, I can't believe all the years I've wasted. I can't believe the humiliation. I'm never going to recover from it. I mean, all this time he spent out of his mind, this whole era of his life, he's never going to get it back. But there is no expression of regret or despair here. Just worship and praise and joy. Why? Well, it's because he now understands that nothing is wasted in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Not a day, not a moment. And what that means today, friends, is is if you've been eating grass for a while, maybe a long time, if you are finally ready to submit, finally ready to renounce your sins, you can raise your eyes toward heaven today. You can say, all right, God, I'm in your hands today. And that will mean that all those years, which from the outside look like a total loss, well, they will be, in fact, the greatest gift you've ever received. Because no experience is wasted in God's hands. Look at verse 36. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I hope you hear this if you've been eating grass for a while, if you've felt like you're all alone, isolated like Nebuchadnezzar. I hope you hear this. There's one more thing I want you to see, one striking thing in this text. This king who has been disgraced and dethroned, who's been homeless and insane, he is not ashamed to tell others his story. I mean, if that happened to me, I wouldn't want people to know, would you? But Nebuchadnezzar not only does not try to cover it up, Nebuchadnezzar writes out the story, he publishes the story, and who does he send it to? Do you remember the address that was given at the very beginning of the chapter who he says he's speaking to? It says, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. In other words, it doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter what people think about him anymore. It only matters that they come to know God. See, Nebuchadnezzar has discovered what people who devote themselves to God always discover, what, what the Apostle Paul was to write centuries later, which is this. He said, we have this treasure, this treasure of God's love, this gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in flawed vessels, every single one of us. Friends, we are cracked pots. I am looking right now of a room full of crackpots. I mean, (laughs) look around you. Don't you see that? It's just the truth about us all. We are the fellowship of crackpots. And you don't have to look very long and very hard when when you interact with other people because they're just like you. You're going to see some cracks. But if you keep looking, if you look even more closely... You will see what God saw when he looked down from heaven and and Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes, which is a little lump of clay that one day, one day, in the hands of the potter, one day will be free from any mar, any blemish, one day will fully reflect the glory and the beauty of the image of God. But you have to trust the potter you have to turn from pride. You have to renounce your sin. You have to trust God. Will you do that today? Will you turn to Him and trust Him? He is so very good. You can trust Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and as your people, we give you thanks for your word. And we ask as your people that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak truth into our hearts and that we, by your grace, would respond to that truth. Father, I, I pray especially for anyone who's here right now who has been procrastinating or denying or excusing or rationalizing whatever issues they may have in their life. Lord, I just pray that they will put all that aside and they will lift their eyes toward heaven. They will do what you call us each to do, and that is to renounce our sins and our wickedness, to turn from our pride and to humbly depend on you for grace, for salvation, for life each day, Lord, for everything that we need. Lord, may that be happening even now across this room as your people pray to you. Father, I also want to pray for anyone who's here who, who doesn't know you yet, Father. You have been speaking to their hearts in different ways and in different times. Lord, you've been reaching out to them and maybe they've been pushing you away. Maybe, maybe they've been procrastinating turning their life over to you. Lord, I ask that even now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would grant them new life. Lord, that you would turn their hearts around and they would, they would see your beauty and see your glory. And they would just fall in love with Jesus, your son who died on the cross for our sins so that we might be set free. Even now, Lord, may there be repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would bring your truth and your salvation to this place, across our city, into our communities, for your glory. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And all of God's people together say, amen.